Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. There was a decent crowd on Lower Regent Street heading for the mile last Thursday for Trooping the Color, Platinum Jubilee edition. But it wasn't so difficult to weave through on my way from Piccadilly Circus Tube to the Athenaeum Club in St. James's. I'd been invited to a jubilee lunch, which was interrupted briefly, to step into the club's private garden and watch the jubilee fly past. I'm not a member of the Athenaeum, nor to the manor born. I have a generous friend who is a member and who takes me to lunch there occasionally. Most of the talk around our table was about the war in Ukraine. There was not so much conversation about the big event taking place a hundred yards away. All of the guests were of an age. We had all been through the big moments of Elizabeth's reign. There was little new to say. My friend's wife ordered coronation chicken for her main course, and that was the one expression noting the occasion. The crowd outside the door was mostly English, but there were a sizable number of foreign tourists. I didn't get the sense they had traveled to London especially for the Jubilee. They had just happened to be here and gone along for the show. Except for the Americans who asked for directions at Holborn Tube on how to get to Green Park. They were definitely in town for the event. When it comes to the Queen and her children, grandchildren and great-grandchildren, many Americans can be described as modern monarchists. The overseas presence was a reminder that during the course of her seven decades on the throne, Elizabeth has become the global ideal of a monarch. People think, if we could have a queen just like her... I'd be a monarchist. The Queen's fate has been to be a human tabula rasa on which people could see written their hopes, even those who are not monarchists. In the late 80s, when I was still new in Britain, my friends, mostly Republicans of the Guardian newspaper reading persuasion, saw in her the last line of resistance to Margaret Thatcher. They told and retold the story of Elizabeth on an official visit to Glasgow, expressing outrage at Thatcher's government, her government, when she saw the dire post-industrial condition of the place and saying, these people have nothing. Did she really say that? It doesn't matter. Her role is to be perceived as a symbol first and a human being second. And I built my career as a journalist on the prurient and awestruck interest of Americans in the House of Windsor. In 1981, six months after I started working as a copy aide in the style section of the Washington Post, the notoriously cheap newspaper splurged by sending four reporters from style to London to cover the wedding of Prince Charles and Lady Diana Spencer. My job was to type into the Post's newfangled computer system the reporter's gushing copy as it flowed in. A few months later, I watched as the punmasters on the sub-editor's desk took the big news of the day, Diana was pregnant, to shape the headline, In June, the Heir Will Be Apparent. Think about it. A decade later, living in London, freelancing around the houses, I finally found my way to a full-time job with NPR, the closest America comes to BBC Radio 4, because of my royal coverage. The disintegration of the royal marriages, squidgy-gate, tampons, was of endless fascination to the well-educated liberal listenership. Reporting facts, such as they are when it comes to the royal family, with a note in my voice saying, "'Don't take this too seriously,' made me popular. 
NPR's morning news show couldn't get enough of the story, and so I was offered a contract. And because I was officially NPR, I got to meet the principals. There were invitations to post-divorce lunches at the American Association of Correspondents in London, with first Princess Diana, a colleague whispered in my ear while waiting our turn to be introduced. She's wearing an awful lot of makeup, which was true, but explained by the lightning storm of flashbulbs from paparazzi on the pavement outside Brown's Hotel as she walked past the window on our way into lunch. Next came Prince Charles. Actually, the Prince of Wales couldn't stay for lunch, but we had a pleasant drinks hour in which he urged us American hacks, off the record, to look into why a certain Australian-born naturalized American media mogul seemed intent on destroying his family. Then I won the lottery and got invited to a Buckingham Palace garden party. Every July, the Queen holds three not exactly intimate affairs. Thousands of ordinary Britons are invited for service to their communities. The capital's diplomatic corps is added in, and it was at the garden party that I saw the two realities of the Queen's life collide, the symbol and the person. The multitudes were summoned for 3 p.m., and for an hour we wandered the back forty of the palace grounds, admired the flamingos drinking from the pond at the back, took tea in enormous marquees, and then, at a trumpet call, gathered on the lawn as Her Majesty and her family emerged onto the rear terrace and formed a tableau so we could look at them while the national anthem was played. The Queen in front, Prince Philip two steps behind, on her left shoulder, I think. The Prince of Wales, the same distance behind, but on the other side of her. Charles, looking wretched and older than his years, more like his father's brother than his son. Eventually, the Queen was led down the steps, where a very small group of people were to be presented to her, but around this scene, several hundred others crowded in, a murmuration of monarchists, ebbing, flowing, swirling, hoping for a closer glimpse of the actual living human being, Her Majesty, as she worked her way around the select group. It was the most unphlegmatic, un-English behavior. They couldn't touch the hem of her garment, or even ask for autographs, but the folks who followed her across the lawn would have, if they could have. The following year, Diana, another human being turned into a tabula rasa, was killed. After Diana's death, my Republican-leaning friends and many pundits here were of the opinion that the monarchy was doomed. But I knew differently. Over time, I had seen that the monarchy serves a similar function in British society as the Constitution in the U.S. It's a sacred symbol, the revered heart of national identity. You can rip it, abuse it, amend it, even cut off its head, but you cannot do away with it, because then you would no longer be the same nation. When foreign-born folk become citizens of the United States, they swear their oaths in rooms that often have a framed picture of the Constitution, with its first three words written in extra-large script, We the People. When I finally became a British citizen, in a ceremony at Hackney Town Hall, along with two dozen other immigrants, we sang God Save the Queen, her portrait looking out at us. We meant every word. Symbols, totems, the core of national belonging. 
By the time I became a citizen, a decade after Diana's death, the Queen had reinvented herself, with the help of screenwriter Peter Morgan, Helen Mirren, and Claire Foy, and had begun her remarkably long and popular final act. The last few days, the American networks have been in their key positions in front of Buckingham Palace. The last Lancaster bomber and surviving Spitfires from World War II flew past once again. There have been block parties and platinum piss-ups in pubs. All the rituals have been observed. But the jubilee has been muted. Many more people were trying to get off this island on Tuesday and Wednesday for a foreign trip than were heading to London for Thursday's celebrations on the Mall. The Queen did not attend the Thanksgiving service at St. Paul's or the Epsom Derby horse race or the glitzy jubilee concert outside Buckingham Palace, underscoring the sense that an era if not an individual life, is over. The 70-year reign of Elizabeth II has underlined that this country is defined at home and abroad, for better or worse, richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, by monarchy. And if you don't think the royal show will run and run, think of how many Britons are already looking forward to the reign of King Charles' son, the Queen's grandson, William. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. The royal family is pretty well set up financially, but to keep this podcast going, I need your help. Please visit the website www.goldfarbpod.com and make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks.